Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Today we are going to be studying the story of Noah and the ark. Noah and the ark. And we're going to be looking at Noah and the ark from Genesis 6 through 8. I know your bulletins say that we'll only be going through the end of chapter 7. Disregard that, please. We're going to keep going all the way through chapter 8. And I am very excited to be studying this passage with you all this morning. I'm convinced that this is a passage, this story of Noah and the Ark, this is something that needs to be rediscovered for many of us. Uh, I think that because, uh, or well, there's lots of reasons why with the story of Noah and the Ark, we might be tempted to just breeze on by it and not give it the sort of attention that it is due. This is probably for a number of reasons. I think for many of us, surely not all of us, but for many of us, this is just a familiar story. It's a very familiar story. We grew up with this. We learned about this in children's ministry. We colored pages that depict the story of Noah and the Ark and the animals on the Ark. We've worked with flannel graphs and we've seen uh, the story depicted on these graphs. We've we've, uh, watched cartoons. We've sung songs. This is just something that we're aware of and so our mind can begin to tune out that which is familiar. For others of us, though, This is a story that is just fantastical. It's it's a strange story. It doesn't make sense to us that there's this devastating flood that's sent upon the earth that wipes everything out. We, We begin to ask questions. How in the world does this accord with science? Is there evidence for this? What was the extent of the flood? How did the animals all get to the ark? And so our brain starts to turn and it's difficult. It's strange. It confounds us. And so we just set aside the story and move on by. For others of us though, we know the content of this story and we know that it deals with heavy stuff. It deals with judgment. And and that's something that we're uncomfortable with that offends our sensibilities or it's just too heavy for us in the season of life. And and so we set it aside and we move on past. Well, I wanna urge you this morning to tune in. Tune in with me as we study these these three chapters. The, The fact that there are three chapters devoted to Noah and the Ark, I think demands our attention and demands that we actually dive in well to this story. God doesn't waste space in his holy book. He doesn't waste space. This passage, this story, this is foundational. It's foundational for us to understand who God is and what he is doing in this world. And so I'm convinced this morning that God has us here and he wants to help lay that master foundation so that we might rightly comprehend him and rightly comprehend how we as his church are to function in this world. And so this morning we will be studying this passage, Noah and the ark, Genesis 6 through 8. We're going to have two points. First, God judges comprehensively. God judges comprehensively. 
And by that, I mean that God's judgment is big. It is total. It is catastrophic. God judges comprehensively right out of the gate. We see how God responds to sin. Is it a light response? Does he merely slap it on the wrist? No. It is comprehensive. It is devastating. It is a big judgment worthy of sin. And I'll be upfront, this is a heavy point. This is a difficult thing to wrestle with. But as Eric mentioned, in the heaviness of this, the glorious thing is that this gives way to grace. Our second point this morning is that God saves sovereignly. God saves sovereignly. This is not primarily a story about judgment. Judgment is huge. We can't get past the judgment that is on the pages of scripture. But this judgment gives way to God's marvelous and lavish grace. And we'll see that in the story of Noah and the ark. God's grace takes center stage in this passage. So that's where we'll be this morning. God judges comprehensively. God saves sovereignly. Let's pray as we go into the word. Father, we thank you that we can gather this morning together to worship you in the name of Jesus that we can come boldly into your presence and we can come to your divine self-disclosure and by your spirit, you can take this word and apply it to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would do that now. Would you allow this word to land and to cut and to encourage and to compel where it needs to? Father, we offer you this time as an act of worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So once again, our first point this morning, God judges comprehensively. If you have your Bible, let's read starting in chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you were to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will will establish my covenant with you and you shall come to the ark, you, your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you. So once again, first point, God judges comprehensively. He judges comprehensively. And I want you to notice right out of the gate that this point begins with God. It begins with God. This might be the biggest thing that we need to reckon with this morning. This is not primarily a story about Noah. This is not primarily a story about an ark or animals or a flood. This is a story about God. God is the main character this morning. I think we're conditioned to read the story 
of Noah and the ark and have Noah stand at the center of this story. He becomes the main character. And this is one of those ways that we often reduce this story to moralism. The way it goes is be like Noah, who in the midst of crazy and bizarre circumstances trusted God, even though he had no idea what was going on, he trusted God. It ended up working out really well for him because the rains came. So be like Noah. There's certainly a kernel of truth in that. To to be like Noah is not the the worst application. Noah is held up in other places in scripture like in Hebrews as an exemplar of faith. And so we are to have a faith like Noah and, and reverently fear and believe God. But if we reduce this story to be like Noah, have faith in the midst of the bizarre, then we are epically missing the point. We're missing the point. This is not a story about Noah. It's a story about God and what God is doing in Noah and through Noah to bring about his kingdom on this earth. This is the sort of thing that that ends up filling the plots of a lot of common movies. Have you seen Evan Almighty? Has anybody ever seen Evan Almighty? A while back, the sequel to Bruce Almighty, uh, God calls a congressman who lives in Virginia to quit his job and to build an ark. And so he does that, kicking and screaming the whole way. No idea why, because there's boats and it's modern times and he nevertheless is called to build an ark. Everybody makes fun of him for it. Everybody laughs at him, but he just keeps going and he does it. Well, inevitably, through the craziest of circumstances, a dam breaks, water comes, and Evan, uh, having an ark, is able to get on it and save all the people who made fun of him and Through the crazy circumstances, it works out in the end. That's not what's happening here this morning. That is not what's happening. God is doing something much bigger. What is this story about? It's about God. And it's about God moving the story of salvation forward. It's about God preserving for himself a holy people who will be redeemed in Christ. It's a story about God dealing with sin. So consider these verses that we just read. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Verse 12, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, he determined to make an end of all flesh. It keeps going. Chapter six to eight, over and over and over again, put the emphasis on God. God acted, God declared, God gave instructions, God judged, God saved. God is the one who stands at the center of this story. He does it all. This is a story about God. And so what is God doing here as it relates to our first point? God's judging. He's judging. He's judging comprehensively. He's judging justly. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was full of violence. Verse 12 repeats the same idea. The earth was corrupt for the flesh of the earth had corrupted it. The people of the earth had collectively ruined the earth. They had so corrupted it that they brought the earth back to a state where it is being decreated. They're ruining everything. When the the passage here says that the earth is full of violence, it's not saying that it's literal war all the time or that people are brawling in saloons only. 
The, the, the idea here is, is that violence characterizes the people's hearts. Surely there is all sorts of physical violence, but, but the idea is that sin fills the earth. Wickedness fills the earth. Sin is pervasive in the earth. And this is striking. It's striking. And it's striking because it is the exact opposite of the reasons for why the earth was created and why we were created. If we were to go back to the beginning of Genesis, we would actually see that we are to be a people. We are to be a people who image God, who image God and fill the earth with his glory by ruling and subduing the earth. Glory is to be what fills the earth. Glory but, but what do we see here in this passage? What fills the earth? Is it glory? No. It's, it's violence. It's wickedness. It's sin. So what happens? God says, as a result, that he himself will judge. He himself, not an impersonal force, not a random hurricane, not Satan, not a dam like in Evan Almighty. He himself will make an end to the earth and he will blot out all flesh. And that's exactly what he does. Genesis 7, 11 through 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of that month, on the day, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of heaven were opened and the rain fell down upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Genesis 7, 19 through 23. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed over the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swimming creatures that swam on the earth and all mankind everything on dry land and whose nostrils breath of life die. And he, God, blotted out everything, every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. What happened? The, the windows of the heavens were opened. And the deluge came down. Who opened the window? Did it open itself? No, God did this. God himself opened the window. God sent the rains and God blotted out humankind. Verse 21, all the flesh died, everything. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing. God did this. This is a devastating judgment. Once again, this is a comprehensive judgment, a catastrophic judgment. Why did the flood come? Why did the flood come? Some people are surprised to learn that the flood story in Genesis 6 through 8 is not the only ancient flood story that we have uh, recorded. There are actually all sorts of accounts of an, an ancient and terrible flood from the ancient Near East. One of the main ones, one of the more popular ones, and one that I'd like to highlight for us today is actually called the Epic of Gilgamesh. 
the Epic of Gilgamesh. This particular story is an ancient Mesopotamian story. It's a really long poem and it tells the story of Gilgamesh and all of his crazy adventures. And one of those crazy adventures deals with a giant great flood. I wanna highlight this particular account for you this morning because when you compare the epic of Gilgamesh and you compare Noah and the ark, the flood story from Genesis 6, what you see is God's glorious and grand character on display. The epic of Gilgamesh and Noah and the ark, they're very similar in a lot of ways. In the epic of Gilgamesh, uh, the God, a God comes and he warns the hero of the story that, that the pantheon of gods have decided to destroy the world with a, with, a, with a gigantic flood. And so he warns this hero and the hero responds by building a giant boat, kind of like the ark. And he brings his family aboard. He, he brings what's needed for survival aboard. And there, and there are lots of other similarities like that. The differences abound. There are so many differences, so many reasons for us to hold fast to the, to the clarity and the truthfulness of scripture, but this is something that exists and I think it helps us to understand. One of the main differences of this story and of the story of Noah and the ark is the why. Why did the gods decide to flood the earth in the epic of Gilgamesh? Because the people of the earth were too loud. Because they were too loud. They talked too loud. They sang too loud. They played tambourines. They had raucous parties and this noise went up to the heavens and it annoyed the gods. Does this sound like a worthwhile reason to blot out every living thing that's in existence? I hope the answer is no for you. Similarly, Uh, A big blockbuster movie recently came out about the life of Noah or the story of Noah and the Ark. It was cleverly called Noah. And I I will spoil it for you. It was not a very good movie. It was about Noah, the Ark, and a flood, surprisingly. Uh, But what's, what's, what's really interesting about this movie is the why. Why did the flood come according to the movie Noah? Well, this is a bit simplistic, but the why is because humans were unkind to creation. They were unkind to creation and they were unkind to animals. And so the flood comes. Do these accounts get why the flood came right? Does God judge the earth because we're being too loud? because we so enjoy hamburgers. No, no. Clear emphasis in our passage is that the earth is full of sin. It's full of violence. It's full of evil. In the story of Noah and the ark, we do not see God being petty or arbitrary. We do not see him elevating animals or plants over humankind. No, we see the purity of God's character. We see a God who cannot abide sin. So he responds justly, appropriately, and comprehensively to sin in judgment. God judges not the volume of mankind, but the wickedness of man. The wages of sin is death. 
And when the whole earth is full of sin, then death is what the whole earth deserves. God renders that judgment in the, in the story of Noah and the ark. At a strange level, I hope that this is encouraging for you. I hope that this is encouraging for you. Please know that God is not fickle. Please know that God is not arbitrary. Please know that God is not easily incited. No, he is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't judge the earth because we make too much noise or we annoy him. No, his judgment is because our sin is personal and it is against him, our holy and awesome God. And he cannot abide sin. It speaks to his character. So I hope this encourages you. At the same time, I hope that it does sober you. It certainly sobers me. Just as God has judged so clearly and so evidently in the book of Genesis, he will one day judge finally and fully. Once with water, in the future with fire. God's judgment is a reality. It is a personal thing. And it is coming for those who have not believed in Jesus. This is sobering. This should produce in us a reverent fear, a reverent awe. At the same time, it should also remind us that that this wrath is what we have been saved from in Christ and, and this God is who we have been saved to in Christ. Since the beginning, we've seen that sin and God are not compatible. God, the holy and awesome God, cannot abide sin. It goes against everything about him. It goes against his good plan for creation. It robs him of glory. It brings creation back into a state of chaos. God will not abide sin. Do you have a category for this sort of God? Do you have a category for this sort of God? Do you have a category in your mind for a God who judges justly and comprehensively? Do you have a category for a God who judges the wicked personally, who doesn't passively or impersonally rely on nature to do his bidding, but no, he is the one who blots out the wicked. Do you have a category for recognizing yourself as a sinner who is right, who who should sit in the place of uh, being the object of this sort of judgment? This is a story of judgment. And God is the agent of that judgment. The book of Genesis reveals this more and more. And and it reveals more and more the true nature and character of our God. Who is he? He's holy. He's awesome. He's pure. He dwells in in unapproachable light. This is our God. And so the question is, who is God to you? Who is God to you this morning? We don't have to wonder the answer to that question because God's book has authoritatively spoken and revealed him to us. In the story of Noah and the ark, it reveals certain absolutely vital characteristics of who our God is. He is a just God who judges sin comprehensively. And so I urge you, be people of the book. Go to the book and allow the book to inform how you understand who God is. Our first point this morning is that God judges. He judges comprehensively. God cannot abide sin, so he deals with it as only a just God can and should. But where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? We are sinners. 
On our best of days, we are sinners. We are people who fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. And yet God judges sin perfectly. How do we reconcile this? What does this say about us? Well, this leads us to our second point, and this gives way to hope. Our second point, God saves sovereignly. God saves sovereignly. At this point in the story, what we see is is that God comes and he declares his intentions for humankind. He is going to blot out all living things except for a few. He calls Noah and he tells him to build an ark. And he says, fill this ark with certain animals or with animals and, and fill it with your family. And then he commands Noah and his family to go into the ark and the rains come down and the water goes up. But Noah and his family are aboard. But they're left adrift in open sea. And we come to chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. And the waters subsided. This verse stands at the center of the book of Noah and the ark. And I mean that literally and thematically. The story of Noah and the ark essentially happens in two, uh, in two halves. The first half can be described as decreation. As decreation. God tells Noah of the flood. He tells them what to do about it. He shuts Noah and his family up into the ark. And they stay in the ark for a certain amount of the time. And all the while, the earth is being destroyed. It's being brought back to a place of Genesis 1, chaos. The waters cover the face of the earth. But the second half of the story is a story of recreation. It tells of Noah and his family in the ark for a certain amount of time. It tells of the flood receding. It depicts Noah and his family leaving the ark. And a new creation is revealed. Dry ground is revealed. A new creation springs forth. At the center of this, Once again, at the literal center of this and in the thematic center of this is 8 verse 1. But God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. He remembered him. What we're seeing here is God's sovereign grace on display. God's sovereign grace on display. Our first point this morning was that God comprehensively judges the earth. He judges the whole earth for its sin according to his holy character. The earth is full of violence. Sin characterizes it. And surely that includes Noah. Noah is not a perfect man. He's just like us. He is a sinner. Yet there is an exception. Noah and his family are rescued from the flood. And here's where we see the main point of Noah and the ark. This is not primarily a story about God judging the wicked. That is on huge grand display in this story, but that's not the primary point. Even though God judges the wicked, he saves a few. That's the point. God sovereignly saves. Once again, we might be tempted to make this story ultimately be about Noah. Verses 9 and 10 tell us that Noah was a righteous man. He was a blameless man. He walked with God. And these are good and commendable things, things that we should aspire to. But ultimately, Noah did not save himself. 
Noah did not save himself. No, God was in control of this thing from beginning to end. God judged comprehensively and he saved sovereignly. What do I mean by that? Just look at what action is described of God in the story and look at what action is described of Noah in this story. What does God do? Chapter, uh, chapter uh, six, verse 14. He commanded Noah to make an ark. Verses 15 and 16. He told Noah how to make an ark. Verse 18, he made a covenant with Noah, which we'll talk about more next week. Chapter seven, verses one through three, God commanded Noah and his families to enter into the ark. Verse 16, God himself, not Noah, not his family, not the animals, God himself shut the door of the ark. He shut them in, ensuring the protection of everybody and everything aboard. Chapter eight goes on to tell us that God sent a wind to blow over the earth and cause the water to recede. Finally, God himself commands Noah and his family and all the animals to exit the ark onto dry ground. God saves. God saves. God is in control of every single element, every single detail, and he brings Noah and his family through the wrath of his flood. And he lands them on dry ground. What did Noah do in all of this? Chapter six, verse 22 summarizes it well. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. He did all that the Lord commanded him. This is a great summary of what it means to be blameless, righteous, what it means to walk with God. Noah did what God commanded him to do. The picture we get here is one where God is in control of every single step and detail. He's the architect, he's the engineer, he's the foreman, and he lovingly involves Noah in his plan. He lovingly involves Noah. And what does Noah do? He's obedient. He responds humbly with faith, but he adds nothing to God's saving work. This is from God, this is through God, and this is to God. Earlier I mentioned the epic of Gilgamesh and, and, uh, and did this in reference to the rationale for the flood. Another major difference between the epic of Gilgamesh and the story of Noah and the flood in Genesis 6 through 8 is what happens during the flood. In the epic of Gilgamesh, the pantheon of gods, they come and they, they decide together to send this flood and so they do that. But as the flood starts to rage, as the, the chaos of the flood is revealed, the gods quiver. They become afraid. They cannot deal with the raging waters. They cower over this. Is that the picture that we see of God here? Is that the picture that we see of God here? No. What we've seen since the garden and what we'll continue to see as we study the book of Genesis and in fact, the entire Bible is that from the beginning of the end, God is in control. There is nothing that's out of place. There is nothing that would cause him to fear. There is nothing that would cause him to quiver. In every step of the way in this story, we see God's sovereign hand, his mighty hand that controls the sea, moving salvation forward, delivering his people preserving his people, bringing them through the most ridiculous of circumstances, salvation is offered to Noah and his family by the hand of God himself. What is God moving along in this story? He's moving along the story of salvation. 
even though the entire world is full of evil, even though the entire world is full of evil, God remains faithful. Faithful to what? To his character, to his promises. God said in Genesis chapter three that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the seed of the snake. And what we see here in Genesis six through eight is the beginning of that road. God, according to his loving kindness, his character, his promises, he is delivering Noah and his family, he's delivering a few so that God would be able to move salvation forward so that one day all of this might ultimately culminate in Christ who would come and crush the seed of the serpent. A flood won't stop this. Slavery in Egypt won't stop this. Exile and Babylon won't stop this. God is moving this thing forward. And we see that here in the story of Noah and the ark. In our story this morning, in Genesis 6 through 8, we see God judging comprehensively. He judges the wicked and he does so decisively. But primarily what we're seeing is God saving sovereignly. God saves. God rescues. That's what he does. So what do we do now in light of this? I want to offer you a few points of application. First, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Know that God himself is more committed to you and to your salvation than you are. God who held the world together in such a way that he brought a family through the flood is for you. God's sovereign grace was on display in this story. And just as he brought Noah and his family through the flood by his sovereign grace, in Jesus Christ, he will bring you through the flood of his wrath. Romans 6.23 is an excellent summary statement for the story of Noah and the ark. It says that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And we see that being lived out in the flood coming. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Please know that this morning. Please get that this morning. If you have believed in Jesus, if you have believed in Jesus, then the flood of God's wrath is not for you. It is not for you and it will never be for you no matter what. No matter what, no list of sins will keep you from him. No list of sins will keep you from his rest. Not your pride, not your lust, not your anger, nothing. No, if you are in Christ and these things have been paid for, you are protected in Christ, you will surely reach dry land. How do I know this? Because you are hid in Christ. Noah in the ark is one of those passages that explicitly 100% points us forward to Jesus. Noah is what's called a type of Christ. Our passage says that Noah was righteous and through his righteousness, some were saved. Through the one man's righteousness, some were saved. In Jesus, we see the true and better Noah. Noah was righteous, but he was not perfect. He was a good man, but he was surely still a sinner. 
He sought to walk with God. He sought to be obedient to God's commands, but he could not ultimately measure up. He could not earn his own way to God. Jesus, however, was not a good man. He was the perfect man. He was the one who was truly right with God. He never sinned. He was perfect in character. Jesus alone walked in a way that that we could not. And in doing so, he made his way to the cross and he endured the wrath of God that was rightly reserved for us. He took that upon his shoulders and he drank every bit of it. He soaked it up so that we would not have to. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him we might be righteous. So that in him we might be saved. And so now the song can be true of us. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him and he alone can give me rest. We have so much reason to be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged in Christ. Second, proclaim Christ. Proclaim Christ. Herald salvation in Christ. Proclaim salvation in Christ. Proclaim the gospel with urgency, with regularity, with boldness. We desire to be a disciple-making and a disciple-equipping church here at Grace. And it starts here with gospel proclamation. As I've sat in this story for a while, the reality of God's wrath has been continually impressed upon me. The reality of God's wrath has been impressed upon me. There is a people for whom the flood of God's wrath will come upon. There is a fixed day where God will judge the living and the dead. This is a certain reality. And what we have to reckon with is that these are actual people, individuals who are currently sitting under the wrath of God. People that we know, people that we love, people from every tribe and every nation who have not bowed the knee to King Jesus. These are people who will experience the flood of God's wrath. What's been even more impressed upon me as I've been studying this passage is not so much God's wrath, but God's marvelous grace. His marvelous grace. This is a salvation in Christ that has been entrusted to us. And now we can freely and lovingly offer it to the world at large. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Who? Everyone who believes. Why? Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed for faith through faith. As Romans 10 tells us, when this gospel is proclaimed, that God by his spirit enables and empowers this proclamation in such a way that people actually have their eyes open and they believe in Jesus for the salvation of their souls. This has been a season where I've been wrestling with my own personal failings where this is concerned. I desire to be a person who's characterized by gospel proclamation. 
I have preached the gospel. I have shared the gospel with others, but this certainly would not characterize my life. And so I've been praying about this. I've been talking to my wife about this. I've been trying to figure out ways that I can reorient my life around the idea of making disciples through gospel proclamation. I pray the Lord would convict me of my own lack of urgency in this. I ask you to join me in this. This is something that we must own as a church. We must be a gospel proclaiming church. And so please pray with me. Please join me in this. As individuals, as families, as a faith family, let us link arms and let us take this good news of God's sovereign grace and let's declare it to the world at large. We're out of time, but I do want to just throw out my last application point and really quickly talk about it. Last, pursue personal holiness. Pursue personal holiness. Just as Noah is not the hero of this story, neither are we. Apart from Christ, we are those who are wicked. We are those who are deserving of the wrath of God, yet we have been rescued in Christ, for Christ. We were created to fill this earth with the glory of God, to image God, so that every square inch of this world would cry out, holy is the Lord. And in Christ, according to the gospel, we have been freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin so that we can actually go and be obedient to Christ's commands and do this very thing. As we're confronted with the holiness of God, as we're confronted with his mighty character, and as we're confronted with his marvelous grace, let us be a people who are now compelled to go and seek to live lives that are honoring to Christ. May we do this as a faith family. In the, according to the Spirit's work in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can gather together in this way today and we can worship you. We can be cut by your word. We can be encouraged by your word. We can be compelled by your word to, lives that, to live lives that honor you. Lord, may you do good work in us by your Spirit in applying this scripture. We thank you for this opportunity today. We pray now that we would go worshiping your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray.